uh, like something, for example, that something I'll never forget is uh, we were playing like a, I think, yeah, it was a Thad Jones chart. It might even, I think it was three and one. And first trumpet part ends on a high D flat. You know, all of us trumpet players being trumpet players. I think I, I played it like a, an A flat. I took it up to an A flat at the end. Right. And he called, he called me babes. He calls a lot of us babes. And he said, hey, babes, if Thad really wanted that note, he would have taken the time to write it in. Warning. This episode contains adult language and adult humor. Since when have trumpet players ever been considered adults? If you are easily offended by these types of conversations, consider switching to the oboe. Welcome to the Trumpet Gurus Hang podcast. I am your host, Jose Johnson. My guest for this episode is Joshua Kaufman. Josh is an old soul. While still in his 20s, Josh has already established himself as one of the finest trumpet players in the elite world of U.S. military bands. Besides crushing the lead trumpet book in the U.S. Army Blues, Josh is also a regular with the National Symphony Orchestra. Josh is an avid student of the old masters, and his wisdom and talent goes way beyond his years. So, pour yourself a big glass, pull up a chair, and let the hang begin! All right, welcome to this episode of the Trumpet Gurus Hang podcast, and I am joined today by uh, Mr. Joshua Kaufman. So, uh, Joshua, so great to have you. I'm going to call him Josh for short, um, and a uh, fellow uh, Pennsylvanian. So, uh, yeah. good to be hanging with a, with a, uh, another guy from uh, from Newcastle originally, which if yeah. you're familiar with, with uh, yeah. Pennsylvania, uh, you know, uh, that's not Philadelphia, so, <laughs> uh, Newcastle. I, yeah, you know, I used to live, uh, for a long time. I lived in, uh, Aliquippa and I lived in McKeesport and I lived in, oh, Sharon. Yeah. so I lived in all, you know, those areas. So Newcastle is, you know, right down the road, man. That's the good half of the state. That's the Pittsburgh Steelers side of Pennsylvania. That's right. Go Steelers. So, uh, I'm yep. in Lancaster now. So, uh, but, uh, you know, still it, it's, it's cool. So, yeah. You, my friend, have uh, for for uh, a man so young in years, uh, you have uh, you've, you've got a great career going. So uh, let's just kind of dive right into some of the stuff. So uh, after uh, graduation from uh, from your high school, obviously, uh, you uh, you you went to uh, UNT used to be uh, North Texas State University of North mm-hmm. Texas now. And you played in that uh, world famous one o'clock band. What's it like being at North Texas? I mean, the because that school has got such a reputation, particularly in jazz. It's like one of, if not the place to be if you want to be a jazz musician. So, uh, what was it like to be in the the, the one o'clock band at UNT? Oh my goodness. Um, well, I'll say this: uh, having grown up in Newcastle, Pennsylvania, and my high school probably had a graduating class of maybe 120 people, which I guess outside of Pennsylvania was relatively small, but we actually thought that was kind of a big class. And so something I realized like day one was that I had already, I don't want to say I missed opportunities, but I never was afforded certain things, whether it was like music theory class or all these jazz camps that all these other kids had gone to in other States or universities or whatever we had at my school, we had band and choir And out of the graciousness and just huge amount of love from our band director, he started an after-school jazz band because me and my friends really wanted to play jazz music. 
And, uh, but that was all I had. And so, you know, I got <clears throat> certain theory things and little tidbits here and there in my private lessons, but largely my education up until I got to UNT was just really how to play the trumpet. And I barely wanted to do that. I mean, we can go down that road as to how I, how I started on the horn and where I struggled. And I barely wanted to practice Arvins and Clarks and things like that. And so I got to North Texas and just to back up a second, I actually spent one semester at a local school in Pennsylvania before I went to UNT and realized I was going the music education route. I realized I wanted to be a player. And so my mom said, well, you have to go to where you've always dreamt of going. I always dreamed of going to North Texas, but never thought I'd actually have the, the playing abilities to get there. And uh, but she really pushed me. So I, I called a professor and he helped me get a tape put together and everything. And well, I ended up getting accepted. So that being said, now that I'm I'm actually there at that point in time, I uh, because of that semester I'd spent, they put me in like music theory two, piano two. They gave me all the credits from the one semester I did in Pennsylvania. And I made it about, I think, two days. And it might have just been one. And I thought, okay, never mind. I need to start from square one. Because some of these kids were just kicking my butt. And I couldn't keep up. And uh, so I started from square one. But uh, lab band auditions came around and trumpet was like the one thing I could kind of do. Um, and I made the two o'clock lab band as a freshman. And that was a huge learning experience. I very quickly got the ego kicked out of me. You know, I thought I was hot stuff and very quickly kind of got tamed out. But then, yeah, the, the, my remaining three years I spent in the one o'clock. And uh, I guess kind of like my first few days at North Texas, really, I guess in summary, is kind of how I spent the whole four years there. You know, it was um, the place is kind of called a factory <laughs> yeah. and you just kind of get on the conveyor belt and hope you don't fall off. But if you do, and most of us did, I certainly fell off more than once. If you're willing to put in the work in your own time, the teachers and educators and professors there will bend over backwards and give you the shirts off their backs to make sure you succeed. If you're putting in your time, they'll put in theirs. And uh, it, it was just an incredible experience. Um, I, I don't even know where to start. I mean, obviously, the one o'clock band where I spent three years in was just incredible. And now, having been out of school for a few years, I'm starting to see the fruits of the relationships that all of us built. You know, some of those cats are teachers at other places or now they're in orchestras or they're in other military bands here in Washington or wherever. And so now there's like this big web of connections and we do gigs with each other and record CDs and all these things. And it's kind of like a, like a giant fraternity really. And uh, so it's kind of cool to see the long-term effects of the one o'clock band, but being there every day was like a lesson in real life. Uh, the, the one director that I had for three years um, would have been my first year in the two o'clock. And then they asked him to stay to direct the one o'clock band was a guy by the name of Jay Saunders, who oh, is another yeah. player that if cats don't know about, they really need to check Jay out. Um, Jay has been heard a lot on so many recordings and TV shows and NFL themes, but sometimes you might, you know, might not know that it might not be a household trumpet name, um, but he's cer certainly legendary in Texas and at uh, the university. Him at being the director, uh, our trumpet lessons were very similar in this regard. There was so much institutional knowledge and real life experience. Uh, like something, for example, that's something I'll never forget is uh, we were playing like a, I think, yeah, it was a Thad Jones chart. It might even, I think it was three and one. And first trumpet part ends on a high D flat. 
you know, all of us trumpet players being trumpet players. I think I, I played it like a, an A flat. I took it up to an A flat at the end. Right. And he called, he called me babes. He calls a lot of us babes. And he said, Hey babes, if Thad really wanted that note, he would have taken the time to write it in. And uh, just like little tidbits of knowledge like that goes so far. And he would go on kind of about that. You know, he told a story one time. Uh, he was new to Dallas after getting off the road with Stan Kenton. And, and uh, he was doing a recording session. And obviously he was doing the trumpeters thing. And the producer, somebody came out from the booth into the, into the studio and said, hey, man, you sound great. You really do but we're just trying to sell a little bit of toothpaste <laughs> and, and it would just be little things like that, that I think are so hard to learn um, just anywhere. You kind of have to be around the right people. And so I feel so lucky to have had somebody like Jay Saunders uh, directing the bands and teaching trumpet lessons, just because there was so much institutional do's and don'ts. And, uh, you know, Jay went to school at, at the time, North Texas state with Gary Grant right. and, and I know you've, you've hung with Gary Grant and Gary has that really cool, like do's and don'ts of like the studio. He has that, you know, that famous yeah. list. It was stuff like that, that he was always telling us in rehearsals and lessons. And uh, that for me was almost more valuable than the trumpet playing. And as valuable as that stuff was sort of like the, the etiquette and what you, you know, the do all the do's and don'ts of just the music business that went so far because he was able to save a lot of us from, kind of burning our behinds or doing something stupid because he already knew about it or he had done it himself and he learned a yep. certain thing. Yep. And uh, I just think that's, well, like you, you said uh, before we started, you know, the old guard, we really have to take our time and, and especially as young players and, and really learn from the old guard. Sometimes it's so easy now to just people want to like disregard all the old stuff and do new things. You know, I, I people got on me about that, uh, because I was a big advocate for Louis Armstrong and Roy Eldridge and stuff. And everyone down there was trying to do the newest tip of stuff. And I was always like the, well, you got to learn this first and understand where we came from. The same thing goes for just the business in general. And so having somebody like Jay Saunders direct the one o'clock and be a trumpet professor, I just really think was um, incredibly invaluable. And I, and I think it shows too, because the students now are, are everywhere, you know, and they're, they're all playing. Yeah. Well, you know, that there's a, uh, the, the theory is that, you know, the way that we learn is through experience, you know, and uh, the smartest people are the people that will learn from other people's experience, you mm -hmm. know, because you know, you, you're not going to be able to experience it all. And especially at a younger age, you know, there's certainly um, I was having the conversation with my, my wife about that the other day. Uh, you know, it's like after 60 years on this planet, um, there's a lot of stuff that I've learned and, you know, I'm thinking back when I was in my twenties and thirties, like, my God, if I knew that when I was that age, I would have, I would have made some of the stupid mistakes I had made. Um, right. But, you know, so that's part of what I try to do is, you know, I, I don't like to tell people what to do, but it's like, Hey, you know, uh, yeah, I was in your shoes once and this is what I did and this is how it turned out. And you know, you make, you make your choice, but you know, the, those guys who have been in the biz for so long, you know, while things have changed in terms of like technology and certain things like that, there's just still basic human principles at play, you know, right. and there are so many great trumpet players in the world. Uh, you know, there, there's more jobs out there for trumpet players than there are great trumpet players. Uh, but 
what gets people the jobs uh, consistently and gets them a career is not how so much how well they play, but it's how good of a person they are, how dependable they oh. are, and, you know, and, and that's the stuff that, that you can't, um, you're not going to learn an average trumpet lesson. So being with someone like a Jay or, you know, uh, some of the other great uh, teachers, uh, you know, like people like think like Bobby Shue and, you know, people like mm-hmm. that, just, you know, they'll not only tell you how to play the horn, but they'll like, you know, Hey dude, this is the way you, you know, if you, if you want to have a career, these are the things you really got to think about. Oh, absolutely. I mean, there's no doubt in my mind that Jay helped me in a big way. Uh, you know, again, like I mentioned, I was a freshman in the two o'clock band and that just sort of like, took the balloon and went and he very quickly put the needle in the balloon, you know, (laughs) had he not done that, who knows? I might've been, you know, I could have been a big jerk or turned a lot of people off or this or that or whatever. And so he saved me, you know, and taught me that like, you know, your value as a human being is more than just how great you are at the trumpet or what lab band you're in or this or that. Like, uh, and now I see that now being in the army blues here in DC the most important part of our hiring process really is, is uh, if you make it past the finals and you do a um, interview with the entire band and any one of us, all 18 of us can ask anything we want to ask. And we learn so much about a person in that, you know, 10, 15 minutes that they're in talking with us after they've done all their playing. And we've had some guys come in that, man, they really play their tails off, but you're just like, man, is this really a dude that I'd want to hang out with after a gig? Or is this a dude that I'd like want babysitting my kids or something? Because all of us, you know, in this job in particular, we're here 20, 30 years. And uh, we, you got to be able to be friends with each other and get along. And of course, we still have disagreements in rehearsal or different musical opinions or whatever. Um, but we're all able to like put the horn down. And like just the other day, like a bunch of us went for a run to the Lincoln Memorial or we'll go kayaking this weekend. You know, we actually have like human relationships and friendships. You know, we can put horns down and be normal people. And that's something that I've learned. Um, well, again, I'm only 27. I'm still figuring that out. Like your, your worth as a human being has nothing to do with your level of musicianship. Um, I've learned that through a couple of people here that I, I actually teach lessons to. And I don't, even, I don't even like saying that I teach lessons. I like to think of it more of a collaboration, like a couple of students in particular, are like retired CIA people that mm-hmm. live in DC. And now they just want to play in their like local community orchestra here in Virginia. And, and maybe sometimes they did at certain points, they didn't sound so great, but I'm sitting there thinking this dude had a whole career in the central intelligence agency. He's not a dumb dude, yeah. you know, and, and, but it's so easy that if like, if you hear somebody that maybe is having a bad day or isn't that great or, or whatever the situation is, or they're not stellar, it's so easy for people to disregard them or think this or that about people. And uh, so, like you said, just that, like, it, we have to be able to maintain our humanity and like our, our, our worth as, as people, you know, and the musician part of it and trumpet part, of it, that's just, that's just one piece of the puzzle, yeah. you know, but so easy to just become obsessed about who's the greatest player or who does this or what, you know, yeah. mess, um, there's more to life than that, you know? Oh, absolutely. You know, and, and that's really been um, a critical part in the, in, when what led to the evolution of what I'm doing with the podcast, because, you know, I, I remember I was, um, I was at ITG. Uh, it was at King of Prussia and uh, I was hanging out with, uh, you know, 
the, you know, not, not name dropping, but I'll sure, drop sure. names, you know, but I was hanging out with like, you know, Wayne Bergeron and, you know, Sean Jones and people in, you know, Frank Green and people like that. Uh, Bobby Shue was there. So we're all like, you know, different, different times we're at the bar where, you know, we're chat, chatting, stuff like that. And, you know, people would come up and it's like, you could see they wanted to talk to one of those guys, but they were afraid to do it mm-hmm. because, oh my God, it's, it's Wayne. Oh, it's Bobby. It's Frank. Yeah. Um, and I started thinking about it and I'm like, well, the only reason I'm hanging with these guys is because I just started talking to them, you know, and talking to them like I would, you know, if I'm, if I'm at a bar, a local bar and there's somebody sitting next to me and I just strike up a conversation. It just, yep. I already knew that we did have something in common, but what I started thinking about, is like, you know what, these guys are walking around here in this hotel and it's like, people are falling down, you know, <laughs> we're not worthy. We're not worthy. Right. So, you know, if, if if we go up the road and we go to the local Starbucks, nobody knows who they are. Right. Exactly. You know? they're, they're, they're just people. And so yeah. when you stop treating people like they're special because of what they do, uh, it, but you know, not saying that, you know, you don't want to treat people special, but if you're going to treat someone special, treat them because of who they are as a person, not by what they do, because right. we all have talents. We're all great at something. Um, and we all contribute in different ways, but at the end of the day, whether it's, you know, you, me, you know, Alan Vizzuti or Jeff Bezos, everybody's still got to put their pants on one leg at a time. Yeah. So, you know, I, I definitely, I can definitely feel what you're talking about. Um, well, yeah. So, so you had, you'd already mentioned, you know, you're, you went from, from uh, UNT and you went into, uh, the, the army blues, mm-hmm. which, you know, if, if you're listening to this podcast and you've not listened to the army blues, you don't know what you're missing. Uh, the military bands uh, to me are just such fascinating creatures um, because so many people that get into them, uh, like you're saying, it becomes a career. It's like a, it's, it's a 20 to 30 year thing because you get to play great music. You get to hang out with good people and at the, you know, at the end of the day, you 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 uh, still have a paycheck and, and benefits, which is right. unheard of in the music world. Exactly. Um, <laughs> so you know, as you were talking about the 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 um, the process, the audition process, um, you know, when when you're with these guys, um, how do you like how how easy was it for you to fit into the groove as the the new kid on the block um well i'll just i'll give i'll give two disclaimers um the the first of of which is that the 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 bands here in dc are what the military would consider premier bands so our jobs are a totally totally different gig than the field bands i hate to call them regular bands because there's still some amazing there's still amazing players and all these but but th- th- that's a, that's actually a totally different gig. Like what the band at like Fort Leonard Wood, Missouri does is like totally different from us. So I can't speak to their experiences. I can only speak to mine. And then the second of that is even within the premier bands, whether it's the band I'm in, Pershing's own army band or the president's own Marine band, Air Force, Navy, those cats, even between the branches, the jobs can be a lot different at times. And there's a lot of, just because of the policies of the branches or, you know, stuff like that. Right. So my, my experience is really exclusive to the army blues uh, and the army band here. That being said, uh, the audition process, um, 
I thought was pretty grueling. Um, it, it was, I was in my last semester at school. I was actually just getting ready to graduate. The auditions, I had two auditions. One was for the Airmen and Note, and uh, one was for the Army Blues. And they were three days apart, and they were a week before I graduated college. <laughs> and I remember thinking, okay. Oh, and there was, I was, I was uh, taking a cornet audition with the Navy band here. And I thought, okay, if I don't get any of these jobs after four years of school, what the heck did I do wrong? <laughs> yeah. So I will say that maybe I got a little obsessive about the material. Okay. Um, but usually the first, the first step to all of them was, uh, you know, you submit the tapes and everything like that. And then you get invited live. Um, and that's where the auditions got really different. The Airman and Note was largely sight reading, almost all sight reading. I think I brought maybe one, two prepared pieces there. The Army Blues, on the other hand, was like the exact opposite. It was all prepared material. One sight reading excerpt they would have for me there. And while at first I thought that would be easier, it actually ended up stressing me out a lot more. Now being on the other side of the fence, if we give a cat some sight reading, and a lot of us, you know, the music world's small. Usually someone, at least one person in the band knows every applicant. And now we do things blind anyway, so we don't even know who they are. But at one point, we could see them. And, and if they get to the finals anyways, they have to play with the band. So we, we end up seeing who it is. But you, you may, you know, if the person is a stellar player or they've sounded killing all day, but let's say maybe just something, you know, goes wrong on a sight reading thing or this or that, you can always give them the benefit of the doubt. Guys get anxiety. Guys get nerve. I, I had a really hard time with nerves that I've had to get over and just all, all kinds of other situations, right? Well if everything's prepared and you're thinking, man, we gave this cat six weeks to practice this music and he, and he still isn't getting it right. Then there's no way it can get any better than this. Cause he's had, he's had it for six weeks. And so the prepared material actually ended up scaring me a heck of a lot more because I thought, man, there can't be any mistakes. I've had this for however long, you know? And, um, but very graciously, the army blues offered me a job and obviously I accepted it. I, it, the army blues is going through a weird, turnover right now um we were founded in the early 1970s i believe 1972 so like you mentioned you know guys stay 20 to 30 years so if you think about that if everyone kind of got in officially in the 70s and stayed 20 to 30 years they would have all retired around the same time and then the band i walked into so they would all left in the 90s which is sort of the band i walked into there had not been a personnel change in like 12 15 years and then i came along mm -hmm. I walked into something that was well established, right? And not not to their discredit. It's not it's not anything against those guys or anything. I love those guys. Guys like Mark Wood and Graham Breedlove and Kenny Rittenhouse. And um, but my my opinion didn't matter. Um, not, I mean, if it did, obviously it did. But like one guy's not going to change the band. You know what I? You know, or the way I played this or that, or you know, for a little bit when I started to play lead trumpet, I got hired as a, as the jazz guy. But when I started to play play more lead. Uh, they were still driving the bus and I was following them and I was cool with it. They'd played these charts for 20 some years together. Who am I to come in and say, well, we're doing it this way now. That, that's not how it goes, you know? And, uh, but the transition was really easy because I had grown up admiring a lot of these players. And so I just did my best as if, almost as if I, a similar situation would be if I'm subbing for somebody, you know, if I'm on a big band date or a session, um, okay, well, perfect example. Um, I, I just recorded an album with the Airman and Note, and I was playing lead, and Brian McDonald, who's a good friend of mine, plays very differently than I do. Not better, not worse. I mean, he, I say better. He's like one of my biggest heroes. You yeah, know, one, yeah. I want to come here in the first place. Um, 
but it's just very different. We have very different ideas on playing lead trumpet. But when I was there with the band, it, you know, with, we, I was recording with the brass section, it's seven against one. Who am I to come in and play the way I do and just say, well, this is the way it's going to be. It's their stuff. It's their band. It's their music. And all I did was try to emulate and, and play stylistically the, the way Brian would. And they would say, Josh, if you want to take a little, little bit of liberty here or there, do your thing, then go for it. Then I would kind of, you know, pull out the stops. But other than that, I just tried to play the way Brian would have, because that, that's just what you do. That's one of those respect, one of those things I was just saying that like Jay taught us about. Like you just, it's not, man, it's not your place. If Wayne Bertrand calls you to sub, it's not your place to go in and hot dog and show, show everyone your tricks. You, you go in and you cover for him and you do his thing and you play respectfully and you play appropriately. Right. Um, so that was for a while. That was really kind of what I tried to do in the blues. And then the more comfortable I got, obviously it changed. And now since then, uh, out of the 18 of us, there's only four left from my first gig. Mm. I'm, I'm number five. And so now the band has totally changed. It's just turned over, you know, that second generation of cats that got in the nineties. Now they're getting out. And now we have kind of the third iteration of the army blues and this band plays way differently than the band i walked into um again not better not worse it's just different um but it's enabled all of us being that we've all kind of come in within the last three to four years we've been able to kind of make it our own again not dismantle everything they did before us but just put our own stamp on it we're different players i don't improvise like Kenny Rittenhouse and I don't play lead like Mark would. Why would I? We already have those cats. They sound right. good in their organic form. It's just like trumpets. If you want something that sounds like a Bach 37, then just play a Bach 37. You know, everyone wants to copy it. Well, just play the play, play it where it came from, you know? Yeah. And so, so that's, um, there's no reason for me to try to do something else. And so I, I, um, now that the band has had so much turnover, I feel like, um, and I'm playing lead full time now, I'm really able to kind of do my thing. Um, but even within the box of appropriateness at any given time, depending on, you know, what we're playing. Um, but it, it was, it was really cool. Um, well, similar to Jay, you know, I've always been kind of the young guy for some reason. And, and, but that's been cool for me because I've had so many amazing people to learn from when I walked into the trumpet section of the blues, they had all been in, in the band pretty much longer than I've been on earth. You know, I joined the band at, I was tw 22 yeah, I think I was 22. And, uh, you know, those guys were in the, the, the army band 24 years, 25 years, 26 years, you know, and so I was just coming in and trying to just soak up as much information, institutional knowledge, gear talk. We were always talking gear on the bus, you know, whatever. Right. Talking life. We, we talk politics and stuff, you know, and just try to learn from them as much as I can, because, you know, I was the kid. They called me G.I. Josh, you know, and that was my name. For a while, <laughs> you know, and, and uh, it, I, it was just so cool to be in a situation like that. I enjoy in, in some regards, I enjoy being the underdog because that just being around those people. Again, they're just normal people, but they just have so much knowledge, so much experience. And uh, the only way that kind of stuff gets passed on is if, is if you ask them, you know, yeah. or you, you know, you have to reach out to them because, uh you know, those cats are busy. They're not around preaching the gospel. I mean, a lot of them do like master classes or make books or this or that. But um, I was just doing a, a master class on Monday with Ashlyn Parker. He brought up a really cool point. The kids were kind of shy and stuff. And 
He said, if education didn't exist, if schools didn't exist, and the only way you could learn was with like a guru or somebody, let's put, you know, Louis Armstrong in a room with you. What are you going to ask him? Mm-hmm. You know, especially with younger kids now, I'm not trying to get on like another, I'm not trying to sidetrack the conversation here, but uh, like with social media now and texting and this and that, sometimes like they don't even have enough social skills to like render a conversation like this. Right. Um, that's beside the point, but it's like, man, if you have a cat like that, like Ashlyn in a room, I've got a whole host of questions I could ask him. And uh, so I've tried, I don't know, I've tried to walk through life that way. Like not, I'm not trying to blow smoke up people's behinds. I'm not trying to suck up for gigs. I genuinely just, I mean, <laughs> I love the trumpet. <laughs> I, 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 I just, I love the trumpet. I live for the trumpet. I love the music. You know, I studied with, with Alan Bazzuti for a long time and he, he, it's funny, you know, he kind of got weirded out. Um, you know, cause like you said, I come into lessons and I'd be like, Oh my God, I'm sitting with Alan Bazzuti what do I say? What do I do? You know, I'm, I don't even want to play a note in front of him because he's going to think my tuning C is terrible, you know? And he was like the most chill, relaxed. Oh, you just have to do it like this. You know, I'm like, yeah, okay. Yeah. Right. Okay. Like, like you said, man, he's just like, man, this is somebody I could go and have a beer with, you know? And, and uh, we've since, we've since done some gigs together and we've gone out to lunch and never bring up the trumpet. So they're just people, but, they still, they have way bigger bags than we do. And you just have to be willing to tap into that and ask them what's in there. And, uh, you know, hopefully you walk away a better player, a better person and having gained a little bit of knowledge, you know? Yeah. Well, and, and that's one of the reasons that I really am excited about having you, you know, on the hang is, you know, the, the, we have, we have the old guard definitely. And, um, you know, I, I'm definitely old. So, uh, yeah, I, I counted that, but, um, it's interesting to get a, a fresh perspective, a younger perspective, because I think what you start to find is, you know, if if I talk to somebody like a Gary Grant or a Jay Saunders and he says, you know, hey, this is an this is a really important concept. This is something that you really need to think about in terms of being a player. And then if I talk to someone like you, someone who's, you know, in their 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 mid to late 20s, um, and and say hey man what's important to you as as an upcoming player and if you say the same thing it's like okay that's the truth yeah that's the real stuff you know and so uh you know getting getting that feedback from people and getting uh particularly like for you coming uh you know you've been in the blues for you know for a few years but but still i i'm sure that experience is very fresh in your mind absolutely Um, and there are so many people that listen to this podcast who are uh, who are trying to start their career and that they need to get that uh, they need to be able to relate to somebody because sometimes you think about the older guys and go, ah, yeah, well, that's the way it was in the 60s or that's the way it was in the 70s. You know, what about today? Well, you know, you're somebody who's out there, you know, doing has doing the grind now. So I, I think that your insights are so important to so many people. So, um, you, know, you mentioned something earlier about, uh, having problems with the trumpet. So, uh, you know, you know, here you are now with this, you know, this really great career that you're in, that you've got, you know, uh, decades in front of you, uh, and, and so many opportunities that, that have, the doors are now able to be open because of what you're doing at, at this moment. But, uh, apparently there was a time when, when you weren't sure you wanted to go completely through those doors. So, you know, what, what happened and how did you deal with, uh, with the problems that you were facing? 
Um, so quick little background, I guess. Uh, I grew up being very close to my grandpa. I mean, very close. Uh, you know, in the summertime, I'd pack my bags. I was the only grandkid that had my own bedroom out there. And I'd go out to my grandparents' house for like two weeks and mom would have to call just to make sure I was okay, you know. And, uh, but he was a World War II veteran and he loved big band swing music. And so years before I even picked up the horn, I was hearing, you know, Bobby Hackett's solo on String of Pearls, Billy May's solo on Glenn Miller's In the Mood, hearing Harry James with Benny Goodman, stuff like that. You know, we were watching the Glenn Miller story and really what it all, what it started was um, the Benny Goodman story, which is actually a pretty good movie. Um, it's, it's, you know, fairly historically accurate. There's a scene in the film that just like in the concert, Harry James pays tribute to his hero, Louis Armstrong. And he plays Shine. And that scene in the movie is just like, okay, I remember seeing it. I thought, okay, Pap, what is that? That's what I want to do. So that's really where my, in, my influence or inspiration to want to play trumpet came along. But just to give you a little bit of that context, I was hearing all this really awesome music. You know, I was walking into sixth grade band using all this hand vibrato because, well, I saw Harry James do it. So that must be how you play the trumpet, right? Right. And, um, but as I got older, my musical ears were always ahead of my technical facility. I was always hearing this cool music thanks to my grandfather exposing me to all these great things, but I just couldn't play them yet. And, uh, you know, I was like a fifth grader trying to, trying to transcribe. I didn't even know it was called transcribing, but I'd listen to string of pearls and I would sit there and I would try to learn the notes and I didn't even write on staff paper. I'd literally like my grandpa had one of those, uh, legal pads with like the yellow paper, you know? Yeah. And I'd write like a B like I would just literally write the names of the notes and then try right. to how I transcribed as an elementary kid. And, um, and, and I, I did that for a while and I got a little bit older and I, I knew that I loved the trumpet and thought it was maybe something I wanted to do. And so I started studying with a couple of teachers and local professors in the area. And, um, you know, they were throwing the Arbins at me. They were throwing the Clark book at me, Schlossberg. And, and I had, little to no interest in any of that stuff. I barely played out of that stuff. It was no fun to me. It was boring. I didn't like it. It didn't sound like music. Um, and so I, I'd get kicked out of lessons. They would stop teaching me because I'd come in unprepared. I'd forget my book. And I was really resistant to that. Um, but I kept transcribing and I kept checking out records and I kept playing along with records and doing all this stuff. And uh, so by the time I got older probably like a junior or senior there were a lot of things that like my friends uh one of my best friends who i met in high school who's now the lead trumpet player for the jazz ambassadors nick who's from pa or from phillies from uh, uh doylestown pa okay uh you know nick was blowing through characteristic studies and stuff i could kind of do it but i could play jazz i could play harry james solos and and, and so by the time i got to north texas and he and i were roommates for four years and I heard him doing that stuff. I thought, okay, now it's time to play catch up. So I, I started working on the technical stuff by the time I got to school and I eventually figured it out. Um, but, it, but at the time, it seemed like such a bad thing that I wasn't practicing as a young player uh, be, because I wasn't doing what my teachers asked. And I was so resistant. I didn't want to play out of those things and books and stuff, etudes and scales and whatever. I wanted to play music. Looking back on that now, 
if I was given the opportunity to like, you know, God gave me a wand and said, here, you can, you can change your past. I, I wouldn't do it. I, I, I think that gave me an invaluable sense of musicality of varying styles. You know, one of my pony tricks in school was that I could almost emulate any other player except myself. <laughs> now, if I had improvised, well, just tell me, do you want it to sound like, Louis Armstrong playing through a blues or Freddie Hubbard or Harry James or what. Uh, and I had a teacher tell me, when are you going to start playing like yourself? And I thought, well, I'm just having fun trying to sound like everyone else. You know, it took me like four years to really master like Clark Terry's doodle tonguing and stuff like that. It was always fun for me to study those players, but you know, it's like playing piano. People say to start your kids young. Right. I feel like since I was so young, you know, I was like a three, four year old hearing jazz and it would be another five years before I ever picked up the horn. But by the time I had picked up the trumpet, I had already heard so many incredible examples of good trumpet playing that hearing myself, I knew that that wasn't right. You know, maybe if a kid never hears trumpet in their life and they play the first note, maybe they think that's what the trumpet sounds like. Um, but I certainly knew it didn't. I'm trying to sound like Harry James on uh, trumpet blues or, or, or something like that, you know. And uh, obviously it would be years before I could ever even get close to that. But I, I, yeah, again, I used to walk away so defeated. And at the time I thought, man, what's wrong with me? Why do I not want to practice these things or this or that? Why am I getting kicked out of lessons? But looking back now, I'm actually really glad that that was the way that I ended up learning. Um, because again, it just gave me a greater musical sense and, and uh, uh gave me really big ears. And so that was more of my strong suit. And so then in college, I kind of had to do the backwards thing while guys were checking out players. Like, you know, some cats I went to school with never heard of Roy Eldridge or maybe some of the more undersung guys like Donald Byrd or something, Fast Navarro, you know, everyone knew who Clifford Brown was and Miles Davis and stuff, of course. Um, but I was, I was shedding with all my classical teachers working out Arbins and multiple tonguing and Charlier and all this stuff. And, and I figured it out. Um, mostly some days it doesn't feel like, it. um, uh, but, but that was sort of my upbringing. And, and there were times though, during that, where, you know, some of my teachers would get really frustrated with me. I thought, man, I don't, I don't have what it takes, you know, but I, I just stuck with it and it ended up being somewhat fruitful. And so I'm really thankful for that. Um, but that was, again, I guess, sort of a, a good thing in disguise was sort of the way I was brought up and the way I wanted to play, you know? Um, so, well, I mean, there's a, I mean, there's a lot of great stuff, uh, just in what you say, I think to me, one of the, one of the things that sticks out the most is, um, you know, that you were immersed in the language of jazz, uh, from a very early age. So it's, it's like, if you grew up in a house where, uh, you know, your, your mother spoke, uh, you know, English and your father spoke German, you know, you're going right. to, you're, you're going to pick up, you're going to pick up that, that language, uh, just, you know, w without even having to try to learn it. Um, and I think that that's so important because, uh, it, it's, it's obviously something that's become part of you. Uh, and and not something that you you had to learn uh, you know you, you didn't have to learn to appreciate it you just it, it was part of you so I think that that's a real big thing um, and actually and I want to I want to ask you about this because sure. um, 
you know, I've had I've had a couple of people make uh, make mention of this, and I think the first person that really said this to me was uh, was Gary Grant. You know, as we were talking about Gary earlier, um, it was he was talking about uh, how it's re- it's really really important for as a lead player that you kind of have that you have that that jazz players mentality that you you have that that the the phrasing the swing the you know all the things that you need to be a good jazz player soloist is the stuff that makes the difference between a, a a good lead player and a great lead player so when you're you know when you've made that transition with with the blues from from being from coming in as you know as you said primarily in that in that jazz chair to now being primarily in that lead chair uh do you consciously feel that you lean on uh your your skills your chops your uh the talents that you develop as a jazz player to to help you to become a much better lead player oh 100 percent, 100 percent um, yeah, I've, I've heard Gary say that a lot. Um, that's one of his big teaching points and, and I, I'm totally on board with it. I mean, really the greatest lead players, and I'm not talking about flashy high notes or cool solos, like high note solos, whatever, but just great. The things that young players don't think about, you know, great time, great phrasing, great, you know, maybe it's the way, like one thing I obsess about hearing Chuck Finley play lead is his use of vibrato which is a little more than some other players. And so that's something that I've tried to do in my playing because I love hearing that. And I, I grew up hearing Harry James. That's really, that's the one sound that obviously I'm not going to play my C trumpet that way, but that kind of core sound that he had is always what's in my mind. That's the first thing I ever heard and was my biggest influence. Uh, you check out Bobby Shoes, another one of those guys, you know, or, or Greg Gisbert. Uh, somebody now who's tearing it up is Ryan Kaiser, man. I mean, holy smokes. Everyone knew he's like, one of the world's greatest jazz players. And then he started playing lead with Lincoln center now for well, a number of years. And it's just, every time I hear it, it's better than the last time, you know? Um, and, and cause I, I think probably it stems back to, you know, jazz ultimately is like a soloist music anyways, you know, even before the big band era, like if you're looking at King Oliver or Louis Armstrong on the hot five and hot seven or, or whatever, it was all small group music, you know? And uh, uh, ultimately you want to, you want to sound like, a vocalist, you know, and just, ha- or just having that sort of human quality to your phrasing and stuff like that. You know, it's like why, when you go to school and you start learning ballads and stuff, the professors want you to know the lyrics. It makes a whole lot more sense if you start playing that way. Um, when I, when I was at UNT, well, and again, one of the reasons I wanted to go to UNT was because I want, at, at the time before I met my wife, I wanted to go to LA and be a studio player. And I thought, well, Frank Green went there, Gary Grant went there, Dan Fornero went there. I need to go there. And then, so I went and I studied jazz trumpet and classical trumpet. And then even on the jazz side, I played in the one o'clock band. And then whatever I wasn't doing in the one o'clock, I did the opposite in another band. So I was a jazz soloist in the one o'clock. I think I played lead in the three o'clock and I played lead in the one o'clock and I played jazz in the two o'clock. And so I was just trying to, sometimes it felt like I did nothing but put out fires, but I was trying to cover as much ground as I could, not only to try to realize well, if I want to make a career in this, I have to wear as many hats as possible or it'll offer more opportunities. But secondly, because they, they, they coexist sort of the lead player and jazz player experience that they are, they are not mutually exclusive from one or the other. Um, Both have incredible benefits, you know, like uh, if I have to play devil's advocate sometimes 
having a uh, lead player in the section next to you not playing lead sometimes can be a heck of a lot better than a jazz player that does nothing but then play small group because they just don't know how to play in a section and follow people or articulate a certain way. They're always going for that kind of foo-foo-y sound, which is totally cool. But sometimes those kind of players lack uh, section sensibility. And then sort of what we're talking about now, vice versa, sometimes lead players, they know nothing but high notes, you know, and, and sometimes you hear them, they're barely swinging. Um, you know, I'm not talking about anybody that we all love, you know, I'm not talking about anybody like that, but, but um uh, yeah, sometimes players, they just worry so much about endurance and high range and I got to get the most singing sound possible and they forget about all the actual musical stuff that makes it sound cool. And um, <clears throat> that for me, uh, 100% has, I have leaned on who I like as a jazz musician. Um, I, I love the way Clark Terry plays. I love his sense of swing and his whimsical way of playing um i've always loved the way harry james plays just his like sonorous sound that's one thing i've always tried to do as a lead player is i never wanted a super focused sound i always kind of wanted that more conrad gazzo kind of harry james vibe um and uh yeah yeah i could keep going on and on um but i've as my jazz i'll put it to you this way uh because i'm kind of getting off i have like trumpet add yeah it's uh, all right uh as my jazz playing has improved, my lead playing has also gotten a lot better. And guys in the band have noticed that too. Um, Cause I've made a really diligent effort to work on maybe certain feels that I'm uncomfortable with, or like when I'm practicing here and, or if I'm coming home from work and I just want to play, but I don't really, you know, I'm kind of my brain's fried. I don't want to really dig into something. I might put on a neighbor salt and then like, I like boxing myself into certain things when I'm improvising, like, oh, okay, I'm only going to, I'm going to try to play a whole course of nothing but triplets. See if I can keep my mind working in that way. Keep it moving. Or like another thing, one of my teachers used to make me do is whatever note you ended on, you have to start the next phrase on the same note. And so like that would make you a lot more aware of how you ended phrases. Cause a lot of times I'd get in the habit of like the beginning would be really good. And the end would just be whatever it is. And so it started making me think in complete sentences, things like that has helped like phrasing and sound concept. And maybe I put a little bend here in this line or, or whatever. Um, th that's all, that all comes from, from jazz playing, you know, and, and, and I mean, check out Snooky Young, you know, listen to the way he plays lead. I mean, that's why he's one of the fathers of first trumpet playing is just because of that, that innate nature is, is an amazing soloist that translated into the way he phrases and plays big band charts, you know? Um, and I, yeah, I, I think the best lead players on earth are also soloists, you know? And I would even say that about, um, a good friend of both of ours about Wayne Bergeron. I mean, he's always no doubt been an incredible soloist or a, a lead player. And he's also been a great soloist, but like his jazz playing has gotten like better and better and better. And then he came out with his uh, newest album, uh, uh, full circle. Mm -hmm. It was like, Holy smokes. And I, I told him, I said, man, it's like your lead playing is, is, is different, you know? And, and it just, it goes to show how important, um, being a good jazz player is because it just it just gives you a more natural feel. Nothing's forced anymore. And, and again, you're playing as if you're just like a vocalist, as if you're singing the lines, you know? Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, I, I think that, that there's that wonderful balance that, that gets 
that you get when you have both of those skill sets, because, uh, you know, the, the jazz playing, uh, you know, you, you have to be a little more, uh, in touch with the emotional side of the music. Absolutely. You know, the feel, the, the you know, all that sort of stuff. And then, um, uh, you know, the lead player, obviously, you know, you have to have those skills as well, but then you have to have, you know, you obviously have to have a command of the horn uh, in terms of, of, you know, your range and your endurance, as we talked about earlier. And when you have both of those, you know, I, that's, that's how, you know, your, that strength and that ability to play the complete register of the horn w- will help you to be a better jazz player because there's nothing, there's no, going to be nothing that you hear that you're not going to be able to play. Right. And then when you're playing lead to be able to have that feeling that you get when you're a jazz player and feeling where the lines are going and, and how to, to, to really, like you said, sing with it. You know, I, I agree with you hundred percent, man. Cause you know, I think about all my favorite lead players are all people that have that kind of really great balance and, and, you yeah. know, they can tear it up on, you know, either side of the horn. Yep. Yeah, I mean, listen, like another thing, another guy that I love that you've talked with is like Jerry Hay. Like, you know, his his stuff isn't necessarily like big band lead playing, but if you check out the Al Jarreau stuff and uh, Sea Wind or whatever, it's like ridiculous. And then like you hear his solos and they're like some of the his harmonic language are like not a lot of like lead players out there doing that kind of stuff, you know, or at that time, you know, and so it's just they 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 benefit both sides just same way that I, I really believe that classical pedagogy and teaching really benefits the commercial side of the horn and then vice versa, you know, but yeah. a lot of. Well, and, and, you know, like, you know, you're, you're, st- you were, you were talking earlier about, about Alan um, and, you know, he's one of those guys too. It's like, yeah, there, there's really nothing on the horn that he can't do. You right. Know? And, and it's that, it, granted, I mean, it, he is sort of a freak of nature in many <laughs> ways, but, um, uh, and I say that in the kindest way, I love Alan, but yeah. um, it's, you know, I think sometimes we get so, uh, so focused on one aspect of what we're doing uh, that we lose sight of how the other things can make us a more complete player and and even if we take that you know so you know obviously you know, it the, the better your technique is the better your, your jazz playing can be the better your lead playing can be you know on and on and on and on and on but if you know even if we take it beyond that it's you know like um you know if you focus too much on trumpet you know uh, being being a great trumpet player is great but being you know the, there are other skills that you can develop in life that will help your trumpet playing uh, and, and that your trumpet playing can can help other aspects of your life. So I'm a firm believer but that that you know we live in a holistic system. So you can't change one thing without changing the others. Uh, so you know the, the things that, that make you a great lead player uh, can also be the things you know like you know being uh, you know having clear intentions and and you know d- focusing your sound things like that those can all be translated to doing business you know the things that you do about being a good section player that can make you a a better partner in your your familial relationships and things mm. like that so you know everything is interchangeable uh, so i i think that that it really behooves us to think in a grander scheme as opposed to just such a narrow scheme about, you know, well, I just do this one thing. Right, right, right. 
Yeah, you definitely don't want to pigeonhole yourself. You know, that just you just automatically limit, you know, limiting your career and limiting your abilities. And there's uh... this episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. A lot of people ask me how I how I jump from like the classical end of the horn to the jazz or even from jazz to lead or whatever. And, and I mean, it's really not that different. You know, there's only one way to play the trumpet. And I'm not saying like the Adams school or Maggio or this, but like, you know, you blow in one end, sound comes out the other. Okay. Just keep, just keep it simple. And as long as like what you're saying, if you go hang out in Spain for a while, you'll learn some Spanish, go hang out in Germany, you'll learn German, go to France, you'll learn some French. Listening to the music is all about the style and, and, and just how it goes, so to speak, to keep it simple. So if you have all the facility and technique down so that the trumpet doesn't become a limiting factor and you've listened to the stuff enough that you've, uh, you know, absorbed it via osmosis and attentive listening, it, it's pretty easy to be a good versatile player. Really, it's not. It's not rocket science, but guys, for some reason, they think it's like, you know, two opposite ends of the ball field, you know, but it's still the same ball field. So, yeah, yeah well, and, and that's, yeah, that's a really good point that, uh, you, you know, we, we tend to want to say, you know, that everything is we, we, we focus on the differences. And this is certainly a societal uh, issue as well as, as we've been <laughs> seeing more and more over the, the past few years that we want to focus in on what makes people different from each other, as opposed to, you know, if you really look at it, we're all fundamentally the same and we fundamentally right. have the same desires and the same needs. And we may express them slightly differently, but at the end of the day, what are you concerned about? You're concerned about, you know, having a roof over your head and, and food on your table. You know? Right. So as a trumpet player, you know, especially I think when, when people want to pursue a career as a trumpet player, sometimes it, it helps to have a, a focus, but I think sometimes it hinders because you, you have this one singular idea of what it means to be successful right. and you lose sight of the fact that what you, at the end of the day, what you really want to do is you want to play the trumpet. Right. So just, just play the trumpet. Doesn't matter whether it's a, you know, you're playing with a mariachi band or a, uh, an orchestra, you know, if yeah. you're, if you're getting a chance to get out and do what you love every day, that's a major win. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, that's, that's why, you know, when I was wanting to get a job somewhere, I was going from, you know, everything from, yeah, taking a jazz chair audition to a, a cornet soloist audition with a concert band. I mean, Obviously, I, I, my, my heart lies in more commercial music and in big band playing and stuff. But, you know, I play regularly with the National Symphony Orchestra and I do other things. And you can't tell me that if that job, that cornet gig was offered, I would have said no. I would have said yes to it. I would have taken the gig because ultimately just we want to I wanted to play the trumpet, you know, and I, I almost don't even care what kind of music it is. If it's good, that's a bonus. Um, but that, that's that's the whole reason that I just stuck with it. Uh, you know, all these years, it's because I just love the trumpet. I love, I love music. You know, it doesn't matter what kind of music. And my wife, who <laughs> one of the funniest things about our, our relationship, which is great, um, but she's not a huge fan of jazz, believe it or not. She loves hearing the orchestra. She loves classical music. 
And, uh, but she's also a little bit older than me and she grew up in, with like nineties hip hop and all this other stuff. And she's been opening me up to all kinds of different genres that I would have totally disregarded. And so my musical, you know, horizons are even broadening myself, you know, and, uh, just, there's a lot of good music out there. I just saw a video yesterday, Duke Ellington. It was like a, it was a black and white scene. I can't remember what TV show it was, but it was, um, he was doing an interview and he said, I don't understand why music needs to be in categories. It's either good or it's not. Yeah. Why, why does everything have to be in a category? And uh, so I don't know, that was just, I guess, something that was on my mind today. You know, like you were saying, ultimately, we just want to play the trumpet, right? So the, the worst thing you could do is, is pigeonhole yourself into doing that. Again, I, I think at least the way I try to teach my students now is, is, um, I can't take credit for this. Sean Jones told me this, like books like the Arbins, for example, that's not a classical trumpet book. Our instrument is Western in nature. Yes. And so a lot of it's going to sound classical in, na in, in nature, but it, it's just like a how to, it's like, uh, when I, when I was growing up, those, those black and yellow books were real popular, but like how to garden for dummies and how to, yeah. what that's kind of what the Arbins is. It's just, this is how you play the trumpet here. You know, and so when I have a kid that wants to come jazz, come learn jazz and his mom gets upset because he's doing nothing but practicing Arbins, I'm like, listen, these are the building blocks, okay? And once we get past this, then anything you learn in, in, in jazz idiom will not be an issue. It'll be a non-entity because the Trump, yeah, the Trump is a non-entity. It's, it's no problem. So he can play anything on this side. But until he works his stuff out, he will encounter things on this side of the horn that he won't be able to execute. And... um so work on facility and technique. And I spend so much time on fundamentals now. And hopefully you're doing a lot of listening and, and really grasping concepts of all kinds of music. And then it's just, again, just using your ears. You know, if the trumpet's a non-entity, then all you have to do is speak it. And if you know what it sounds like, well, there you go. And, yeah. and I mean, it's obviously more difficult than that, but in some ways I would say it's, it, it's not that, that's just how you be versatile, you know, Yeah. just like about languages, you know? Yeah. Well, you know, it, it, like you're saying, it, it's not, it's not rocket science. And certainly it's, it, it, there's kind of this interesting curve that, that, that occurs that, and I was having this conversation with, with, uh, with someone the other day that, well, you know, when you first start something uh, it's kind of like ignorance is bliss. You know, mm -hmm. you, you may think that you're really, really, oh, this is easy. This is, you know, this is great. This feels really good. Um, and then it's like, as you start to learn, you start to feel, uh, you start to understand how little you know. Mm -hmm. And then you get to a point where you actually have a level of skill. And to me, the more skilled I get at something, uh, and I usually refer back to like my martial arts experience with that, because uh, that was like really kind of eye-opening because of the physical nature of what I did. Um, it's like, wow, you know, the better I got at it, the worse I felt because <laughs> I became so in tune with my body that when something was a little bit off, it felt tremendously off mm -hmm. you know? as opposed to at the beginning. It's like, hey, yeah, whatever. Um, so I think it, there's kind of like this curve where, where you, you feel like you, everything feels good, then everything feels bad. And when you start to feel worse, that's usually the best that you're <laughs> when you're at your best. Yeah. Um, so like as a, as a player, those kind of things of, you know, when you first start, you may think that you sound 
wonderful. And then when you get to a point where you really know what you're trying to do, you really have an idea of what you're trying to accomplish and, and how you should sound. You know, it's like, oh man, yeah, that, you know, people will go, man, that was the greatest performance I ever heard. And you're like, yeah, you know, I just wasn't quite centered or the horn wasn't uh -huh. speaking quite right for me, or, you know, that my tongue was a little fluffy and, you know, nobody else knows it, but you know, you certainly do. Right. But, you know, I, when you get to that level, it becomes so apparent, but the problem can be that, that then we can start to obsess over those minutiae that yeah. we feel, but no one else, you know, the audience, which, you know, if you're a musician, you've got, you know, what you do for yourself. But if you're, if you're an entertainer, if you're playing for other people, you're an entertainer and it's less important how you feel about yourself and how your audience is responding to what you're doing. Right. So how do you deal with that? Uh, you know, balancing that what you feel in terms of the the quality of your performance and the response that you get back from your audience? How do you not obsess over the little things? Well, I guess I have three points. The first one's the quickest. And this is just like something that Jay taught me. I, I've been there, done that. Somebody comes up and said, man, you sounded incredible. Great job. I'm like, oh, thanks, man. I kind of blew that last shout chorus and I was really hanging on by a thread in the hall. You know, I just couldn't hear myself. I was blowing too loud. It's just easier to say thank you. No matter what we feel, don't feel like you have to justify yourself, prove yourself to anybody, and it's just a polite thing to do. Somebody comes and tells you, great job, this or that. No matter how dog crappy you're feeling, just say thanks. <laughs> the second point is kind of what you were saying about your martial arts experience. Something that I experienced a lot at UNT was and I still to this day, you feel like, man, I'm riding so high, man, this is awesome. <clears throat> What's happening? This is a really important thing, I think, for younger players to realize, myself is included. Um, when we're playing music, right, the, the trumpet obviously has a physical aspect to it, the execution with embouchure and articulation, all this stuff, right? But there's also an aural concept. We hear our own sounds. We have to use, we're, we're using this part of our body and this side of the brain and then this side of the brain and this part of our body when we're playing with other musicians. And I had a teacher tell me once, I, I was just getting really discouraged for a while. I mean, I was in a rut for maybe a few weeks. I just, I couldn't figure out why. I just thought I all of a sudden just started getting, getting worse. And my teacher said, it's not that you're getting worse. Your ears are getting better. And I thought that was really profound. He was the only person in my life that's ever told me anything like that. Um, Mike Steinell, another great teacher at North Texas who uh, retired a, a couple of years ago. Um, but his, his point was that like, yeah, like if you think you're in like a fifth grade, let's say you just pick up the trumpet and you're going, huh, 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 you know, hot cross buns. You're walking away going like, man, I killed it. This is awesome. And if you played that way now, you'd be like, oh my gosh, what's going on? Right? Well, why is that? Well, you've probably been exposed to good music and you know what good trumpet playing does sound like, but your ears have gotten better. You know, I mean, I was in sixth grade band and, and the teacher would have the, the, the tuner out, right? And she'd point to you and you'd have to guess if you were sharp in tune or flat. I didn't have a clue. I almost didn't even know what that meant. I could hear that the pitch on the metronome the, or, or tuner, excuse me, was different than, than um, you know, what I was playing, but I didn't know if it was high, low, this, I didn't. You know, now I can tell within a few cents if it's not quite right. 
And something I've experienced during COVID, I've been obsessing about my intonation because I'm hearing things now that I wasn't hearing even as recently as maybe a year and, or a year and a half ago. It's not like anything's like bizarrely out of tune, but it's those real finite differences that can make a, that can make a big difference. So I've been playing with drones and all kinds of stuff. And some of the smaller horns I'm a little more uncomfortable with like E flat and D trumpet and just, just trying to get a little more centered on those horns. Um, and that again, is just part of like your ears are catching up to the rest of what you're doing. So just keep that in mind for whoever is listening, that if you feel like you're in a rut or just something's not happening, it might just be that your ears are getting even more attuned to what you're doing as a player. Um, and so, so many guys, they forget that, you know, you just think you hear what you hear, but you don't. I mean, the longer you do this, the more you hear things in a deeper way, in a more informed, seasoned way. And my last point, I guess, is uh, another thing that's been one of my goals during the pandemic um, was that I wanted to become more consistent of a player. And uh, it, my wife is pretty athletic and I've watched her and her, you know, we have a home gym downstairs watching her and her routines and like her eating habits and this, and that, and whatever. Um, seeing the level of consistency she, she follows and the amount of success she has, um, her days kind of go like this. You know, you might have a day where you don't feel maybe the best ever, but it's not like, you know, in the tank. Um, and there are some days, like especially when I was in college, and maybe it's because I was doing so much playing or I was just ignorant and didn't know any better. But I mean, literally some days it felt like this. And just, I hated that, that like I would always be terrified of like, OK, what if one of my bad days lands on a one o'clock concert? What mm -hmm. am I going to do? I'm not even going to be able to play the gig. And so one of my longtime goals forever has been to, to, to play, to get to a point in my playing to where if I'm having a bad day, only I know it. That's kind of my goal. And I I'm finally feel like I'm getting there. Um, and part of that has been consistency in the warm-up, consistency in the way I execute playing, trying to be aware of maybe days I'm more tense than others, and just kind of focusing on the, the process, not obsessing about the process. Um, but, but just really being aware of, of how I'm, I'm playing the trumpet, because again, it's, it's a pretty simple concept. You're blowing wind through a piece of plumbing. I mean, that, that's it. You know, it's, it's, it's not quantum physics or Jeff Bezos launching a rocket. I think it's way cooler than that, but yeah. that's just, you know, <laughs> we uh, wear the goofy suits, you know? Yeah, exactly. You know, but, um, you know, so I feel like now I'm finally getting there and, and, and what, I guess what I've come to appreciate, because um, I still have those days where maybe it wasn't the greatest ever. Um, well, Monday night, for example, I playing at the National Jazz Workshop and like the hall over there at that school is just awful. And everybody knows it. The teachers know it. It's, it's like a brass quintet would sound amazing in there. And that's about it. And we had an 18 piece big band and I fell into the rookie mistake of playing a little too loud to try to hear myself over the band. And and. I didn't fold or anything, but it, it kind of hurt towards the end a little bit. I started getting a little winded and my core started bothering me. And, and, uh, but the kids came up and they were like mind blown hearing some of them having never heard a big band live for the first time, you know, and they were like blown away. And you just like, again, kind of my first point, you just smile and th say, thanks. You have to kind of get out. I guess what I was saying at the very beginning, separating your musicianship from your humanity it, it almost doesn't bother me anymore if people make mistakes. And I'm not talking like, you know, destroying a good take on a record because you're not paying attention. 
but right. like if, if somebody makes a, an error or comes in wrong or that like whatever nobody bats a thousand okay and once you once you've accepted that then again that's where the humanity thing kind of takes over and um so when people come up and talk to me after gigs or say things about the blues or you walk away and you're, you're not feeling very good i just try to to take some 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 joy in the fact of seeing how moved especially like younger players who are excited about big band music like that that's pretty cool that's super cool no matter how i played that's pretty awesome and they took the time out of their day to come in and and see you play and so my end goal no matter how i play good or bad in my in my view in my head if if they're walking out changed in some way or maybe they had a bad day at work and they came in and, and now they're walking away happy or maybe they had a loved one pass away and we played a, we just played a tune Monday night called farewell. One of the guys wrote it in tribute to his father that passed away. You know, if, if they're, if they can relate to that story and they're walking out changed, then we as musicians have done our job. You know, I don't, I won't curse on here, but nobody gives a crap about missed notes. Nobody gives a crap if I played too loud or if I was uncomfortable or nobody cares if, I, you know, missed this or, or, or forgot to do that, whatever. And again, it's not like we're missing left and right. That's not what I'm talking about, but you're already playing at such a high level that, that some there, there's guys out there on trumpet forums and stuff. They're just like waiting to hear Wayne Bergeron miss the double D on a high take of, of uh, a holy night. There's guys out there. And I'm like, man, that's dark. Yeah. That, that, that's what you do in your spare time. You like look for guys to fold on stuff. I mean, are you serious? Me again, music is so much, it, it People forget it gets so politicized or this or that, or guys are waiting to hear, oh, look, here's a recording of Bud Herseth cracking a note. I might check it out. I might, I might see it. And, and first thing I think is, well, cool. Now we know he's a human being. Mm-hmm. That's, you know, he's not perfect. Um, but it's not like I'm like, yeah, he missed a note. That stuff doesn't matter, man. That's so, so small in, in, the, in the greater scheme of what music is for, what yeah. we and why we choose to do it. And so I've, I've had to, I've struggled with that though, with regard to like, how do I feel if I'm not feeling good during a performance? I try to just think about that. Like these people are like going crazy over like this dude's tenor solo, or I played a solo or drummer, whatever. They're having a great time. They don't care how I feel. And they're having a good time as a result of what me and what all the other cats on stage are doing. And and, and, and so, like, you know, I mentioned earlier that I, I've always had issues kind of with anxiety and stress and just getting nervous because of stuff like that, obsessing about what if I don't feel good or whatever. I've tried to take care of business at home and become more consistent day in, day out. Hopefully that translates into what I do for a living. And even on days maybe I don't feel so great, I can walk away knowing that hopefully somebody in that audience had a good time. And if they did, then that, that's really all that matters. It doesn't matter if maybe I didn't play the way Josh Kaufman would normally play. It still sounded fine and it got the job done. And that's not to say I don't care, but again, nobody bats a thousand. You know, there's some days I run a two minute mile or a two, I'll do a two mile run. I wish I could do a two minute mile. That'd make my PT test a lot easier. Yeah. But if I'm running a two mile run, there's some days that I'm like maybe like a minute or two slower and I'm, I can get really ticked off and say, you know what? I went out and run and I still gave it a pretty, you know, good effort. And, and I'm not, I'm not saying that like, I'm not trying to get in the attitude of like, everybody's a winner, but 
there's so much more to music than worrying about like perfection. And, and that's something that I've just had, I've, I've had to accept. Um, and my wife's a school counselor. And so she's been a really good influence on me. Um, but just again, like the, the, the I'm, I'm, as I get a little bit older, I'm starting to realize the big picture of why we do this and how music moves people. And, and so I've just really start started to buy into that stuff. And I just don't, I don't really worry about how I feel anymore, you know, and just, you go and do your thing and hope somebody is walking away changed in some way. And, uh, you know, that's what we do as musicians, you know, and ultimately it's for them. It's not for us. I mean, I play music cause I love it, but if nobody wants to come hear you, I mean, I can sit at home all I want, but it's, it's no fun. Musicians always play better with a great audience, you know, yeah. and you know, they're there, they're the consumers. They're there for you and, 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 and they're there to see you and you're there to give them what they want. And um, I think if you sort of, at least for me, I've tried to try to play that way. And I, I've, I've had a lot more m- mental success, so to speak, because it's so easy, like you were saying, to like go home and obsess about stuff. And then as, as uh, Vizzuti would say, you know, I end up with paralysis by analysis. I used to do that all the time. Well, I had, I, at, at the one o'clock concert last week, Mr. Vizzuti, I, I, uh, I realized I was doing this with my, my jaw as I got tired and I'm trying to figure it out. And he'd be like, well, play for me now. And so I would like play something. He'd be like, sounds fine to me. And I'd, I'd be kind of ticked. I'd be like, well, yeah, but how do I fix this problem? So it doesn't happen again. He's like, just try to stay relaxed and, and exhale. It'll, it'll be fine. You know? And, and so as I got gotten older, I've stopped tried to stop obsessing about, you know, what are my toenails doing while I'm playing a high C, you know? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, you know, we, we trumpet players are, are very strange uh, breed of people. And, and it's amazing the, um, you know, like you said, you know, you, you don't want to go out and, and, you know, crap all over the, the set. Right. But, um, you know, but if that's the best you can do, I mean, at any given point in time, then that's the best you can do. Right. You know? And there's no other profession that I'm aware of, uh, you know, especially when you talk about people that, that have to perform at a high level, you know, let's, let's talk sports, you know, you, 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 there is not an athlete out there that's at the top of their game, you know, like the, the epitome of their sport, like a LeBron mm-hmm. or, you know, you know, or, or, you know, Wayne Gretzky or Tom Brady, they never have a perfect game. Right. Every shot they, they make doesn't go in. Every pass they throw doesn't get caught. Everybody has mistakes. Yep. But the key is, is not whether you make mistakes. It's how you rebound from them. Exactly. Absolutely. And, and those guys, I mean, like Jordan to me is like, you know, always been the ultimate competitor. Um, you know, if he misses a big shot, then he's the guy you want to have the ball the next time around. Yep. Because he's, you know, he, he wants to make it, you know, and he'll just, he'll just keep going. He, he doesn't worry about what, what happened. You know, what just happened is what happened. You can't change that. It's like, what am I going to do this time? So I think that, that the more we can get that kind of attitude of, okay, if a mistake was made, let it go. You can always go back and, you know, revisit in the practice room, but don't let it ruin your performance. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, because not only do you ruin your performance, you ruin, you ruin the the performance of everybody around you, and you ruin the enjoyment of the audience. So, oh, 
exactly. I mean, yeah, I've been in so many situations where I'm like, all right, you know, like the blues, we do a lot of like concerts at the Capitol in like July and like 90 degree heat, right? Not ideal playing conditions for a trumpet player. My lips get all puffy and stuff and mouthpiece starts feeling smaller and I'm real sharp because it's so hot outside and humid and wearing these big heavy wool uniforms. Man, we're, you know, they count off magic flea. I'm ready to have a good time. And if I need to wipe my ha- my mouth off with a handkerchief every two bars, I'm sweating so bad. Well, so be it. But I love playing Magic Fleece, so let's do it. Let's hit it. You know. Yeah. We, we, again, like just I, when you when when like the rubber hits the road, you got to forget about everything you did in the practice room and just just play. Yeah. You know, yep. love music. You know what we you know what good is supposed to sound like. And again, like yeah, we're talking about you know you have to have a, a general to play music at this level, you have to have a certain batting average. Like, again, it's not like anyone in the blues is folding, right. but, but nobody bats a thousand. Nobody in baseball, 300 is a great batting average. That's 30%. Yeah. I mean, could you imagine playing that way? Oh, <laughs> you I know? know. We're at like 80, you know, 850, 900, some of us, you know, yeah. and, and, uh, but still no, you know, guys are never a thousand. And most mistakes at this point in the game, Nobody would even know unless, again, like you led on to it, like you said, you know, you might not be feeling great with response or whatever, but my dad listening in the audience, he's, he doesn't know any better. Yep. Exactly. You know, good time but, hearing it. So, you know. Yeah. I love, uh, I think it's Albert Einstein who said, uh, anyone who, who uh, has never made a mistake has never tried anything new. <laughs> right. And, you know, it's like, if you never made a mistake, that means that you're, you, you know, you're not, you're not giving it your all. You know, mm-hmm. if you haven't, if you haven't folded at some point, that means you haven't, you haven't been, you know, really pushing yourself. And so, oh. and, and I think, especially like in the practice room, that's, that's a big thing is that, you know, cause I had that problem when I was uh, younger and in college and I, I would be a much better player if I had already, if I had come to grips with it in kind of the way that I, that I have now, um, which is, you know, practices, practices for making mistakes that's where you want to make your mistakes. Cause if you make enough mistakes in a practice room, your performance is going to be really, really great because you've worked all the bugs out. Yep. If you sound great in a practice room. The odds are you're going to, you're not going to sound that great on stage because you're not making improvements. Exactly. Yeah. Ed, Ed Soap, who was the uh, drum jazz drum uh, teacher at, at UNT for forever um, always said that if you, if you sound good in a practice room, you ain't practicing. And some of the best players that came out of that school that I was in school with, you hear them in a practice room, you're like, what the heck is he working on? You know, but then you get on out on the bandstand and he's like smoking. And, uh, you know, he was working his stuff out. And I've tried to take that. Um, I don't know. I've tried, to, I've tried to incorporate that in my playing. Everyone has to sound good, though, too. You know, I come in here and I'll pull out like my Phil Collins etude books and like go through go through all these little classical etudes that are fun to play and they're real pretty and because it gives my wife a break you know she gets so <laughs> sick trying to hear I'm trying to go after the same thing and sometimes it doesn't sound pretty you know and she'll open my door and she's like I, please I need like five minutes you know so I got to get her like a set of those like Bose like noise canceling headphones for her to like go chill out in the living room or something <laughs> so yeah exactly exactly all right cool man well um. We're going to uh, move on. Uh, I actually have uh, a new segment for the show. You're going to be the first person to to be part of this segment. All right. Um, and uh, this is uh, this segment is uh, sound off, and this is brought to us by uh, our good friends and our my newest sponsor, uh, Barkley Microphones. Oh, cool. Uh, microphone. 
Michael Barkley. Yeah. Uh, yeah, this, this is good gear. Um, but uh, what I want to do is I want to, this is going to be a, a, a new feature and it's going to be about sound. And you've been talking a lot about sound. Um, so what I want to know is, you know, what is like the best advice that you could give someone on how to develop a wonderful trumpet sound? Oh man, I could, I could go down this rabbit hole. Okay. So this is the way I try to explain it as clearly as I can. If, a if, you're, if you're working, let's say, with a clarinet player, okay, and they're, they're warming up and things are not usually happening, what's the first thing they go to do? They take the reed off and they start messing with the reed. Well, why do they start messing with the reed? Whether they're wetting it or they start filing or doing whatever, they're trying to get it so that it vibrates optimally on their instrument because that vibration of the reed is what causes the sound. And the better the reed is and all this other stuff, the better the sound will be created. They're just blowing on the reed. Well, our reed is attached. And I know Bergeron says this all the time. And so for me, my goal every day is to make sure that my reed will vibrate as effectively, as quickly and efficiently as possible. With the smallest amount of air, I want sound like that. And so I'm, I'm, I'm into the James Stamp stuff a lot. Um, but I start my day with um, nothing but air attacks. And I do these things called, uh, they're just quiet long tones. Basically, I call them whisper tones. And I start my, fir my first notes of the day, every day, are a mouthpiece and a horn, pick it up, breath attack on a G. And I, I will play it as softly as I possibly can to where there's almost no vibration, just sound. And some days, like if I'm beat up, if I'm, like let's say I had a hard gig last night, it might take a few minutes for the sound to start, but I'm not fighting it. The physical benefit of that is that a lot of us, after playing hard, your aperture might be a little blown open or swollen or whatever. By, by just blowing the air through the aperture, your body will naturally find home base. And this, this will help you avoid the paralysis by analysis because it will you're, 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 let your body just subconsciously fix it. So your aperture will kind of come back into focus. It will figure out how to create the sound. It might take longer. Some days I pick up the horn. It takes a little while for that vibration to start, but I never force the sound. That's the first thing. Your sound can never be forced. It's so easy to pick up the trumpet when you've had a bad day or you start warming up, doesn't feel great. You just go, ta. No, I'm not about that. I'm going and trying to get the sound to spin as quickly as I can. If you can, because the second you have to force the reed, your chops to vibrate, it's already a losing battle or your sound won't be as um, uh, efficient as possible. Now, that being said, because I don't, I mean, I could talk about this for hours. That being said, if we have the reed vibrating effectively, the other part about this that I think really helps the sound is to make sure that our really understanding that our bodies are the instrument and the trumpet is just a reflection of what we're doing. Right. And every, every note has a certain frequency. That's why a equals 440. So again, I'm a stamp guy. So I do mouthpiece buzzing and stuff like that. I don't obsess about it. I don't want to go into like the anti buzzer pro buzzer thing, at all. Uh, but I, I, I play the mouthpiece. It was good enough for doc Severinsen. And he was the one that kind of showed me this stuff. So if I can buzz, let's say like an etude or just a small little nursery rhymes where I started. Uh, if I can buzz that on the mouthpiece, obviously my lips are vibrating to all those frequencies, right? And we're the instrument. We understand that. Now, that being said, I know that I don't pick up the trumpet and go, I know that the way we, I, and so it's just important to know as a side thing for people watching this is like, 
when I go to play the mouthpiece, that's not the way you play the trumpet. It's a different thing, but it's a very useful tool. And so, in other words, long story short, if I can buzz in tune, let's say a C with the mouthpiece, and I go to put it in the horn, that's always going to be the most resonant sound because you are in tune with the actual vibration frequency of that pitch. And the reason why I found that out is I couldn't figure out why some of my students had these funky sounds. So I had them take the mouthpiece off and like they're playing a G in the staff and you go to take the mouthpiece off and they're like buzzing on an E flat, some of them. And I was like, oh, they're not even close. Again, not saying we buzz to play, but having that relationship of what it feels like here and then putting it in the horn and just exhaling and let the vibration get created that way. Um, I have found a huge improvement in making sure that when I'm playing in the dead center of that pitch, it's just more resonant. So I, I've kind of been um, really big into like pitch bends. And so I'll play the play like, you know, G, F sharp, G, and then I'll play G and I'll go down to the F sharp. No, bend. I don't like traveling between the notes just from pitch center to pitch center play g bend to the f sharp and back and usually when you return to that g and this is kind of similar to like the adams um or mr adams uh lead pipe routine or his little exercises like usually when you return to the starting frequency it's way more resonant because you're you are now in the resonating you're you're, you're like right where the sweet spot is for the note and so what i've realized over time is that my in order to create my sound better, my pitch was directly related to how good my sound was. And when I started playing in the real fat spot of the note, their sweet spot, my sound just got so much more broad and resonant. And my tuning slide came in and my pitch got better and the trumpet just became easier because I didn't realize that like for a lot of my life, I was blowing the pitch down and that's why my slide was always further out than what I wanted it to be and this and that, all these other things. And so I think from a technical side, I know you said it's supposed to be fast, sound off. Um, I apologize. Um, but from a technical side, that's kind of where I'm coming from. And then again, I still believe that our, our ears are our best guide. Having that example, this is kind of like my wall of heroes. And it's I've got them everywhere. But like some of my biggest heroes in music are around my office. Those are the sounds I'm hearing uh, when I go to you know pick up E-flat trumpet and I'm hearing like Rolf Smedvig or, 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 or you know, Hulk on Hardenberger or something, and I go to play jazz and I hear Dizzy or Roy or play lead and I hear Chuck Finley or something. Having that crystal clear example of what you want to sound like, that goes a long way. And some cats, you got to really be honest with yourself. Some guys might say they dig this player or that player, but it's amazing that their connection with their sounds aren't nearly as deep as what, you, what, what they think they are. And so I'm talking about a super deep connection with that tonal quality and having a good example of what it sounds like and then being able to recreate that. And like I said, with the technical thing with my little mouthpiece buzzing and, and whisper tones and stuff, as long as the trumpet's taken care of and my reed is doing what it's supposed to be, then you put two and two together and, and there you go. And so th th that's kind of my advice for, for in, from a technical side and from a, a more musical side of how to improve your sound and just in general, something that trumpet players don't do a lot, it's super underrated, is practicing softly. It's really easy to blow loud and, and to fight the trumpet. Uh, you know, two instruments in particular that you can't fight is the piccolo trumpet and rotary trumpet. You can't force on either of those instruments. So I like playing both of them quite a bit and playing them at very soft volumes because if you can get stuff to respond very quietly, adding a little bit of volume of air to that to make it louder won't be any problem but so many guys can play really loud and they lose all their control when they play 
you know, super, super soft. And so there's a huge benefit to just getting the, everything super focused and getting the vibration to start with as little effort as possible. Um, so I think personally for me, that has gone a long way. Um, but again, I don't believe that anything should be dogmatic in nature. Everything I said might be the total opposite of what you do and it might not work for you. Um, but for me, it's certainly worked and it certainly has helped a few of my students um, improve their sounds as well. All right, cool. And, and you know, that's part of the one of the reasons why I want to add this uh, segment is, um, you know, sound is, is such an important part of playing. And, and that's one of the things that, that so many people talk about, you know, the importance of sound. Um, but not everybody knows how to has a good idea of how to go about creating the kind of sound that they want. What are some of the things they could do? And, you know, if I can get a hundred different guys to talk about it, you well, we might get a hundred different answers. And if you're, if you experiment with it, you'll find the one that works for you. And right. yeah, that, that's the right one. But, you know, if, if you don't have the access and that, that of course, you know, gets back to one of the core principles of this, this podcast is that not everybody has a chance to sit down with a Josh Kaufman or, or a, a Wayne Bergeron or an Alan Mazzuti. So, uh, you know, this is a way of, of getting those questions answered uh, and, you know, to help the next generation of players along. So. Thank I love it. Your input. So, all right, let's go to our next uh, segment, which is, of course, uh, geared up. We got oh. gear. Oh yeah, you know it. You know it. My favorite. So, <laughs> yeah. Oh boy, this this could be just like a complete episode in and of itself. I'm sure. So, uh, yeah. What? Well, let's let's talk uh, just briefly about uh, you know not so much what gear you're playing because you know we, we can certainly talk about that, but but kind of your approach to gear. You know, especially as someone who who has uh, so many different hats to play. You know, what what's your approach to the, picking the gear that you do use? Um. Well, I'll just, I'll just get it out of the way now. And if we want to bring it up later, I'm totally cool to expand. I'm a Yamaha performing artist. And so I, I play all Yamaha instruments. I love them. I think they're incredible. They're constantly trying to reinvent the wheel, um, which I don't mean that in a bad way. Um, obviously, technology is an amazing tool that we have. And, and kind of the same thing with my mouthpiece company. I'm an um, artist for GR Mouthpieces. And I'm also a, a certified consultant and dealer for them as well. And I play Gary Radke's mouthpieces for the same exact reason. Um, they're just so technologically advanced. Now, that being said, that kind of brings me into why I play what I play. Um, I'm a huge fan of tradition. I am. Um, but I would never want to go to my doctors if I have an infection in my arm. And because he happens to be a fan of the Civil War, he's using a surgical kit from Gettysburg and he's going to hack my arm off. I'm not a fan of that. And in the same way, I wouldn't want to be driving like a station wagon from the 50s. I might collect those because they're cool. You know, I've got some vintage instruments, but I appreciate technological advances and guys that are trying to improve what the greats have done before them. So take somebody like, and this isn't an, a, knock, a knock to a, a certain company or anything like that. I'll just give an example. Like, let's say a horn was invented in like the 30s. Some guys are still trying to create that horn. And, and to me, it almost doesn't make any sense. Take the great qualities of that instrument, which I feel like Yamaha has done, and they try to improve upon that. How can we make the pitch better? How can we improve response? How can we improve playability? Like the, um, uh, the player to instrument interface, because there are some instruments that we play that have the most gorgeous sound, but maybe there's like the scales a little out of whack or the response isn't all that great 
or, or you have to pull the slide out farther than normal to get it to play in the pitch. I have a great vintage instrument that is so fun to play, but I've got to get the slide out over in, like an inch to get it to play in tune because the lead pipe's a little short for some reason. They must have built it at like 4.30 on a Friday or something. Um, but that's, that's sort of why, sort of at least the specific gear that I choose, that's why I play and represent the companies that I place because I appreciate both of their commitments to excellence and, you know, I'm not just going to play a three C. Okay. A three C is an awesome mouthpiece. How can we make it better? You know? Um, so that's, that's why I choose what I choose and how I got here um, specifically to mouthpieces for a while. I played two pretty different sizes. I tried to play what all the classical guys were using. And then I'd come over here and try to play what all the lead guys were using. And I struggled with that for a long time. You know, if I hadn't, if I didn't have to do anything but play a one and a half C, I was good to go that day or play nothing but, I don't know, let's just say like a Bobby Shoe style mouthpiece or more singlets or whatever. Um, I was good. The second I had to do both, game over. And so kind of what I had to do is make a commitment to myself, very much in a similar way that Vince DiMartino did. Uh, Alan Vizzuti has done this as well. And some, some other pretty notable players uh, is I kind of had to, if I wanted that level of versatility, I had to kind of go like this. And so maybe my classical mouthpiece is a little, maybe a little narrower. I don't want to say smaller um, because I, I, I make up for it in the cup and backboard. And I'm, I'm not going to get into specifics of that, but I've made my, the size of my mouthpiece, so to speak, a little smaller than I want to, but my lead mouthpiece is a little bigger than what most guys would like to play on. But for me, I didn't want to give up anything in either of what, like in any of the styles that I play. And so that was the best compromise I could find was I sort of went into the middle and nobody likes my mouthpiece. So that's good. Uh, you know, these guys say it's too big. These guys say it's too small. Um, but I, I play, uh, I've been playing GR mouthpieces forever. And I play the Tony Cadlick line uh, custom series, um, which was similar to what I was playing, but he made them with, with Tony and Gary said, man, you got to check these out. This is right up your alley. It's somewhere between a three and a five. Like if I play a three C, it feels still a little too big and a five C feels too small. Um, and it's funny because Tony and I joke, Tony kind of does the same exact thing. And that's why he plays, why he plays because He's, he'll play C trumpet and he'll go play with the Philharmonic and then he does a Broadway show and then Rhea Schneider and he does all this stuff. And that's the gear that has allowed him to do that. And it's kind of the same thing with my trumpets. The Yamaha instruments are, are incredibly versatile. I can get a wide range of colors. And then the interface I was talking about, they're, they're just so easy to play. And it's funny because I, I will admit that um, at one point in time, I, I was one of those trumpet players that thought, oh, Yamaha sounds vanilla and this and that, whatever. You know, when I was growing up, I was kind of a jerk. And once we can go down this path if you want to, but I had a really bad experience with a horn that actually landed me in, 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 a, in a military medical facility because I couldn't figure out what was going on to my chops. And I still can't say definitively that it was the horn. But once, what I do know is once I stopped playing the horn, I never had that problem again, what I was experiencing. Um, and a lot of other players have had similar experiences with the same, the same deal. Um, but, but that being said, that's how I ended up on Yamaha. I thought, okay, I want the most boring thing I can find. What does everyone else in the world play on? Well, basically two brands. I mean, really, there's, there's all kinds of outliers, but there's, there's two brands that kind of dominate the market. And so I ended up liking actually one of my teacher's horns, the Alan Vizzuti model Yamaha. And uh, it, it literally changed my life, not only because it dug me out of that hole that I was in, um, but it was easy to play. It offered me a wide range of sounds and colors and timbres and and, uh, and like the, my intonation was better and I stopped fighting the horn. 
And uh, so that's why I play what I play. I really try to, for the most part, kind of stay right down the middle of the lane and uh, not to, for, for me anyways, not go too far one way or the other um, because I just, I'm not, for me, I don't want to pigeonhole myself in what I, what I do for a living or in my sound concept either. Um, and so that's kind of what I have chosen what, what I have because they're just, again, they're just kind of, may not be the most interesting on earth, but, but, uh, they certainly work and they sound, uh, incredible. And, and, um, anything at this point, if I make a mistake, it's, it's 100% pilot error, but <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> I don't know how it could get any better, but. Oh, all right. That's great. All right. Well, let's, uh, we got to wrap things up here shortly. So we got one last, uh, thing to get through and that is our Robinson's remedy rapid fire round series of, uh, questions uh with a place where uh you get to to give me your your quickest response to this so here we go josh kaufman ready or not here they come right question who's the biggest influence on your life that's not a trumpet player my grandfather all right what's your favorite book oh my goodness um actually a book about my grandfather's ship called uh stories on the fantail about the world war ii destroyer escort the uss bar oh, okay uh what's the worst movie you've ever seen zombievers <laughs> Ooh man is that beaver falls <laughs> that's a pennsylvania joke for yeah uh, yeah uh okay uh if you weren't a trumpet player what would you want to be a history teacher. Okay. What's your favorite drink? Water gives us life. Ah, okay. Um, you can have a dinner party, invite any three living people, any three people in the world can come to this party with you. Who would you want to have? Oh my goodness. Um, living three living people. Um, living people. president George W. Bush. Um, Winton Marsalis and Phil Smith. Mm, okay. Good party. Uh, you've got three additional chairs at that table. You can invite any three people from history. Who would you want to have? Franklin D. Roosevelt. Um, Colonel Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain. He's like a Civil War character. Um, and Louis Armstrong. That's a weird combo. <laughs> it could be a lot weirder so uh all right i can tell you do love your history uh lacquer plated or raw i don't know i'm in the middle of a transition of with all with my thoughts on all this um i love plated but the tarnish on silver is driving me crazy so my newest yamaha is actually a gold lacquer all right uh what's your favorite quote uh, what we play is life. Mm, I like that one. Uh, what's your greatest fear? Losing the ability to play. Okay. Uh, you could be granted one superpower. What would it be? Eliminating hatred. Mm, okay. That, that, you know, you're the first person that's ever said that, but I think that's a great superpower. Um, I was going to say trumpet players could do that, but we're all haters. Um, <laughs> Uh, what aspect of trumpet playing do you feel is the most overrated? 
I would say perfection, but that, that I don't want that to be misconstrued as like, I'm not aiming for perfection. So if you understand that in the right context, but if not, I would say high notes. Okay. Perfect. High notes. Yeah. Uh, what aspect of trumpet playing do you feel is the most underrated? Lyricism. Okay. Uh, you can go back in time, give your younger self one piece of advice about music. What would it be? Relax. You don't always have to be the greatest player in the room. All right. Uh, and you're going to give yourself one piece of advice about life. There's more to life than just being number one. Okay. And a final question, and this is going to be an interesting one for, for uh, a man as young as you, Joshua, but uh, it's, it's a good one to, to think about. What do you want your legacy to be? I, I, you know, I recently just lost my grandfather in May, and he's somebody I still get really emotional about when I, when I think of him. Um, just the, the impact that he's had on my musical life and really the guy that's responsible for it uh, from the very beginning. And I guess I would want my legacy to be similar to his, is that through music I was able to impact people in a positive way and sort of like eliminating hatred to, to spread joy because trumpet players sometimes were just really big jerks <laughs> and uh, music's about having fun and, and, and spreading happiness and joy to people. Okay. Well, that's, that's a great legacy to have, you know, if, if more of us did that, then uh, it would be a better, better world for it. So cool. well, Josh, I thank you so much for spending time uh, with us today. And uh, I am really looking forward to following your career and uh, seeing what you got next, because, uh, you know, listening to uh, your playing already and listening to you as a person, I can say that uh, the, the future of trumpet is certainly in good hands. So thank you, my friend. Uh, thank you. That means a lot. And uh, thank you for all that you do. Seriously. I am a huge fan of the trumpet gurus podcast. Um, you've created an, an amazing educational source for players like me that are looking up to the cats that you're hanging with. So, well, thank I you for among them yeah yeah well it, it's my pleasure and uh you know dc is just down the road my uh, actually my oldest uh, stepdaughter lives down in dc so uh i get down there quite a bit so i i oh, am cool. uh, i'm smelling a hang my friend i'm smelling a real yeah, hang. Have, we gotta have a trumpet hang for sure we we have a, a dc trumpet group and we always are just like all right who wants to have a hang at their house and we have food and drinks and somebody always ends up selling a horn to somebody you know and uh yeah man it'd be great to have you here anytime well add add me to the uh the invite list absolutely just uh i've already been, been talking to kevin burns about uh having a little margarita fest so yeah. uh, he, he told me make some good margarita but uh i i think i make a better one so uh all right we're gonna have a, have a little little uh, taste off so uh be to be the taste tester <laughs> oh, okay. I, yeah and brian has already offered for that too so. all right so yeah we'll, we'll i'll definitely get down there and we'll, we'll we'll hook up so uh thank you for uh hanging with us today and uh you know make sure you check out all the past episodes and and uh you know keep tuned in make sure you subscribe so you never miss another hang and as always peace and slide grease thanks for we hanging out with us today this podcast is all about creating deeper connections through our mutual love of music and the trumpet life. Make sure you subscribe to this podcast and also like and share this episode with a friend. We want to see the hang grow for show. Please support our sponsors 
and consider becoming a personal supporter of this podcast as well. Remember, for less than the price of a bottle of olive oil a month, you can keep this podcast moving smoothly. The Trumpet Guru's Hang is recorded at the Candy Factory, a co-working space and social club located in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Jose Johnson is the executive producer. Post-production editing is by Mitch Bowers. Our opening theme song was composed and performed by Lexi Signal. And our closing theme music comes courtesy of The Greatest Funeral Ever. Incidental music is by Ethan Swayze and Jose Johnson. Graphic design by Ann Kirby of The Sweet Corps. The Trumpet Guru's Hang podcast is produced in collaboration with the So Good Lancaster Media Group.